Good morning. Welcome again to our weekly Bible talk. We're here in Exodus 15, so I'd encourage you to get your Bibles open there. Uh, I've been thinking about this, and believe it or not, we have done nearly 30 Bible talks in the book of Exodus. Now, that's actually a lot more than I thought. Um, typically, you know, we do, we do maybe 15, 20 or so before I go on to another book. You'll remember if we were if you were with us back in the Psalms, I think we did 15 in the Psalms, and then. We went to the Gospel of Mark, and I did something like 15 or 16 in Mark. Um, time kind of got away with me, and I had no idea we've been in Exodus nearly 30. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to finish. Uh, I'd like to go through chapter 15. Chapter 14 concludes the crossing of the Red Sea. Chapter 15 is the sort of worship service they have after that. And then we'll pause there and go to a New Testament book. And I'm thinking when we get to the New Testament... Uh, probably do another epistle. Uh, it's been a while since we've done one of the epistles. Uh, you know, the, the epistles are the letters that Paul, Peter, John wrote. Uh, so if you've got any sort of preference or any desires there, please let me know in the comments on the Facebook page or on the sermon audio page. Um, but I'm thinking again, the New Testament epistles. And if there's one that you'd really uh, like us to grapple with, or you know, you're interested in, uh, let me know. Just for Full disclosure, on Wednesday nights we're studying the book of Romans, so I don't expect to do the book of Romans in these Bible talks. In Sunday school, we're currently doing 2 Timothy as part of our series through the pastoral epistles, so I don't expect to do one of the pastoral epistles. But other than that, uh, you know, any of Paul's letters, Hebrews, uh, I, we did First Peter a couple years ago, so I won't do First Peter, uh, but Second Peter, which is actually one of my favorite uh, books of the Bible, and I've got to be careful there because pretty much any book that I've studied becomes one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, the Three Letters of John, so if you've got any desires there, interest there, please let me know. Obviously, I create these Bible talks because I want to help you understand the Bible and apply the Bible to your life, uh, so if there is, again, any interest there, let me know. And we'll uh, you know, take that into consideration as we think about where to go after uh, the book of Exodus. Today we're going to conclude Exodus 14. Now it's going to be a shorter reading, and with that, hopefully it's going to be a shorter Bible talk. Uh, you know, I feel like I always say that, but things end up turning out to be a lot more grandiose than I expect. Uh, that, you know, if you come here regularly, I don't know what, what's wrong with me in that regard, but uh, my visions never seem to pan out the way that I uh, imagine. They, they tend to be more lengthy, more in-depth, more nuanced uh, than I ever imagined. And even this Sunday series, if you come here on Sundays, we've been going through the Holy Spirit, uh, talking about the, the Holy Spirit. I at first imagined that might be a four to six week series. Well, Lord willing, this Sunday will conclude 10 weeks on the Holy Spirit. And I've actually got a whole lot more to say on the Holy Spirit than that. But for the sake of time, I'm going to rein myself in. But anyway, coming here to Exodus 14, why don't we pray, then I'll set the context, then we'll see what this passage has to say, say to us. Uh, let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do love your word, and uh, part of the reason why we do spend so much time in it is because it's so rich and beautiful and uh, has so much to say, more than we can even imagine. Uh, Lord, thank you for your precious word. The word of it is living and inspired. Uh, it is the very voice of God speaking to us, what Scripture says God says. Please help us now, Lord, as we contemplate Exodus 14 here to really get its meaning and intent. Help us to see how it connects us to Jesus and to the gospel. Give us faith, we pray, to be doers of your word and not hearers only. And we pray, O God, that you might be glorified now. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, we come here in Exodus 14 to one of the big uh, key events in the history of redemption. Uh, you know, I've encouraged you to do this before, but sometime put out like a timeline. Get yourself a nice piece of paper and write a line on it, and then make a timeline of the most uh, 
significant events in the Bible. Now, we've got to be careful there because every event in the Bible is inspired by God. They're all historically true. They've all got meaning and significance. And yet, truth be told, something like uh, the resurrection of Jesus is more important than, say, the death of Methuselah, even though both were true, both happened, uh, you know, bo both are historically accurate, that sort of thing. Uh, so I'd encourage you sometime put maybe the top 10, 12 events in the history of redemption on your timeline. I certainly hope you include the crossing of the Red Sea. This event is, um, like I hope to show you, another installment in the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. I remind you of Genesis 3.15. I think this is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Immediately after the fall, God gives the promise of the gospel. And it's interesting that the promise of the gospel, the first promise of the gospel is worded this way. To the devil, he says, devil, there's going to be a continual war between your seed and the seed of the woman, uh, between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. They're going to do battle all throughout human history until I raise up an ultimate seed of the woman who's going to crush your head, who's going to decisively break your neck and defeat you. Uh, that really, in a way, is a summary of the entire Bible. You know, different people summarize the Bible different ways. They look at it as, uh, you know, a book of morality, you know, kind of like Aesop's fables or something like that. Other people really zoom in on the prophecies and look at it as almost like a prophetic handbook. Uh, in my estimation, you could look at the entire Bible as sort of like Genesis 3.15 played out. Um, and in reality, you could look at the entire our history of the human race as Genesis 3.15 being played out. Um, I won't spend too much time on this. Feel free to ask me questions afterwards if you want to, but I do think that there's a sense in which the current war between Israel and Hamas falls under that broad category of the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. But anyway, that initial promise, often called the Proto-Evangelion, which is, you know, kind of big uh, old-fashioned terminology for first gospel, uh, we're seeing a major illustration of that in this particular passage. And like I talked about last week, what was Pharaoh's mascot? Yeah, it was a snake, and that's why on his headdress he had a snake right in the middle of his headdress. Uh, that is no coincidence that going back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And again, I think we see an installment of that here. This battle is going to continue all the way up until the cross of Jesus, which at the cross, that's where Jesus decisively and once and for all crushes the serpent, uh, breaking his back. Now, is it true that the devil is still very active in our world, going about seeking to destroy and firing his fiery darts at us? Of course, and yet the decisive victory has been won. You know, it's kind of like uh, once D-Day was over, it's as if World War II was for all intents and purposes, over. Uh, obviously, there was still some fighting to take care of, and they had to conquer Berlin and whatnot, and then, you know, finish off the uh, war in the Pacific. Uh, but once D-Day had been essentially established, you know, uh, victorious, uh, the, the battle was, for all intents and purposes, done. And so also, when... Jesus died on the cross, that's when the serpent was decisively defeated, even though there's still a lot of skirmishes going on and sort of, uh, you know, these little battles taking place until Jesus comes again. But anyway, to, to set this passage in the context of the book of Exodus, a uh, real quick summary, we haven't done this for a few weeks, so let me just remind you, beginning of the book of Exodus, it ties in so beautifully to the the end of the book of Genesis. At the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob and his sons, they go down to Egypt where Joseph is the viceroy. They prosper there. They grow. They're fruitful and multiply. Uh, but there arises a pharaoh who does not know Joseph, and he starts enslaving the people. And for a long, long time, he oppresses them, starts killing the male babies, uh, You know, first throwing them to the crocodiles, and then having he's encouraging the midwives to kill the babies as soon as they come out of the womb. So just oppressive, terrible slavery. Um, but the Lord in his mercy remembers his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, at the end of the day, is why God redeems Israel out of Egypt. I remind you, 
Israel's not the only nation on the planet that's ever been enslaved. There are other, you know, dozens and probably hundreds of other nations that were enslaved here and there, and yet God in his wisdom and in his goodness did not choose to redeem them. Why did he do that for the Jews when there were other nations that were probably just as uh, oppressed as Israel was? It's because of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, those promises are so important, and you know, connecting those to the later part of the Bible, those promises are the reason why Jesus is born into the world. He is the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the seed in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. But anyway, in fulfillment of those promises, God raises up Moses, who like he was not very interested in being a redeemer. He uh, was pretty happy just shepherding the sheep out in Midian, but God eventually persuades him and says, you know, I'll give you Aaron to help you. So they go, and then for possibly up to two years, they perform this whole series of plagues. Uh, I'd encourage you to remember that from this series. We often think of the plagues as taking place like on one weekend or something like that. Uh, there's no way possible that that's the case. They're probably spread out over months and possibly up to two years. So two years of Moses coming and saying, let my people go, and Pharaoh hardening his heart and saying, no way, Jose. And then a plague comes and decimates Egypt. They sort of rebuild and recover a little bit. Moses comes back, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no way. Another plague decimates Egypt, and that goes on for up to two years, until finally, what's the last plague? The death of the firstborn, the killing of Pharaoh's son, who would have been the next Pharaoh. And I remind you that the Pharaohs were viewed as gods incarnate. Uh, so in each one of these plagues, God is destroying their gods. The Lord, Jehovah, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is showing the way in which the gods of this world are dead idols. They are absolutely nothings. And I do think that that sets the scene for this final plague, whereas uh, I've made the case before, I do think that Pharaoh himself is killed in this. This is not, you know, like in the Ten Commandments movie, you see Yule Brenner up there on a hill watching the uh, Egyptians go into the water. I don't think, you know, Looking at this passage, I don't think that's what happened. Uh, now, that raises questions, you know, why isn't that mentioned in Egyptian history? Uh, well, this is, a, you know, a couple quick thoughts on that. First, we don't interpret the Bible in light of history. We interpret history in light of the Bible. Uh, so just because Egyptian history doesn't include this detail doesn't mean it didn't happen. If the Bible is the living word of God, we trust it, even if there isn't corroborating evidence from Egyptian history. Additionally, uh, when we talk about secular history, and especially going back thousands of years, don't imagine that we've got this like comprehensive textbook of everything that happened. Uh, you know, we're going off bits and pieces, you know, you know hieroglyphics and uh, you know painting on walls of pyramids and whatnot, uh, to think that we've got this comprehensive record of everything that happened uh, 4,000 years ago is kind of crazy. So uh, don't be bothered when something that takes place in the Bible isn't yet confirmed from secular history, uh, because again, our, our records are scanty at best, and often give people enough time and they'll eventually find the evidence to support the Bible uh, in the ground anyway. It's, it's shocking how often that happens. They're like, oh, King David never existed. He was just a legend, kind of like uh, King Arthur or something like that. And then they dig and they find these coins with uh, King David's face on them from the, the very same time period that King David lived. And people are like, oh, I guess there was a King David. That sort of thing happens time and time. And so you've got every reason to trust the Bible, even when the archaeological evidence hasn't yet been found. Uh, you know, there's a difference between saying the archaeological evidence haven't, hasn't been found and there's something contradicting the Bible. Interestingly, from secular archaeology, we've never discovered anything that contradicts the Bible, uh, but give it enough time and you do find stuff that consistently supports the Bible. Well, anyway, that's, that's enough introductory comments. Let's begin in 1426 and wrap up this account where God is obliterating the Egyptians and their army through the Red Sea. 
Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. Now the only thing I want you to notice there is the way in which the Lord wants the Egyptians to be killed. I know that sounds really kind of harsh. And that might even go contrary to how we've always imagined God. A lot of us, especially if we were raised in America, we have this very kind of Santa Claus type view of God. He's this jolly old man up in heaven who loves to give us stuff. And, uh, you know, he might not like it when we're unkind or, you know, steal. But, you know, boys will be boys. And he kind of winks at it. Um, And God would never do anything harsh. God would never take human life. That's how I think a lot of Americans imagine God. The problem problem with that is that that's not how God actually is. And it's certainly not how the God of the Bible is portrayed in the book of Exodus. Uh, The God of the Bible in the book, book of Exodus is the one who slew the firstborn son. Uh, he, he is the one who crushes Egypt, crushes Pharaoh, decimates their economy. So let the Bible tell you what God is like. Be very, very careful of the kind of God we've absorbed from American culture. Uh, I know that here in America, we claim to believe in God. You know, we've got God, in God we trust on our coins. The, uh, what is it, the Pledge of Allegiance says, you know, one nation under God. You take a survey and something like 80 plus percent of Americans believe in God. Um, People often think, oh, that's great. Isn't it wonderful that we here in America believe in God? Well, when you really zoom in and start asking what kind of God you believe in, it's not the God of the Bible. It's a God of our own idolatrous imaginations. Uh, So don't necessarily be encouraged if somebody claims to believe in God, because if they're believing in a God who's essentially Santa Claus, um, that's not very helpful. And it's not totally different than believing in just some dead snake idol God or something like that. But very clearly, God wanted the Egyptians killed. and you know, you think, why would he want to do that? Well, again, this is a major event in the history of redemption. And in God's view, accomplishing the plan of redemption is more important than saving every single human life. Even saying that sounds kind of weird, you know, to, to me, you know, because I'm I'm raised in America and I've absorbed the same air as you have, but I can't see any other way to read the Bible. God is going to get glory over Pharaoh in part by killing them. Now that ties into the end of the Bible because at the end of the Bible when Jesus comes again there's going to be an awful lot of bloodshed. Um, You know again when when Jesus comes again it's not going to be just all roses and and butterflies and uh, rainbows and all of that. Uh, For for believing people, for, for those who trust in the Lord Jesus, We'll be taken to heaven, every tear will be wiped away, Uh, you know, it'll be infinite joy and worship forever for those of us who believe on Jesus, but for those who have rejected Jesus, it will be utterly horrifying. Jesus will slay the wicked by the sword coming out of his mouth, he'll condemn them to hell, Uh, I mean, it's it's like a terrifying thing. So if we don't have a category for God's righteous judgments, including uh, slaying large amounts of people for his glory, we're going to have a really hard time with the Bible in general and with Jesus' second coming uh, in particular. Because on that day, that's, it's going to be a terrifying thing for non-Christians. Um, you know, we often pray in the Lord's, well, we don't often pray, but we always, whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come. Part of what that includes, I think when we pray your kingdom come, it includes a lot, but part of what it includes is the return of Jesus. But we need to remember that when Jesus returns, that's going to mean judgment, condemnation, um, sentence to hell for all those who have not embraced the Lord Jesus. Keep that in mind. Uh, for those who believe, the gospel is glad tidings of great joy. For those who refuse to believe, the gospel is a me- message of uh, doom and, and condemnation because you will, you're refusing to embrace the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, you definitely see hints of that here. But again, the reason for that is because at the end of the day, uh, the the whole plan of God is about the glory of God, not about just uh, saving as many people as possible, blessing as many people as possible. If that were the case, I mean, so much in the Bible wouldn't make sense. 
But anyway, hopefully some of this is making sense. Hopefully some of this is helping inform your understanding of the character of God. But clearly, God's glory is His goal. And if slaying large amounts of people brings God glory, He will do that. Let's keep going. Verse 27. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. Um, I've mentioned this before, but this takes place throughout the night, which is really kind of interesting to think about. Um, why they did this throughout the night, I don't know, but there's a possible connection here with the significance of darkness. Darkness often is accompanied, uh, is tied to judgment. Uh, we saw one of the plagues earlier, that one of the plagues was a plague of darkness, again, communicating God's judgment. When Jesus dies on the cross, darkness falls over the entire face of the land. So possibly the darkness that accompanied their crossing of the Red Sea was designed to uh, communicate judgment on the Egyptians, but then when the Israelites are safe and sound on the other side, then morning appears. Kind of almost reminding you of the morning of Easter when Jesus rises again. Just an idea. Anyway, verse 27. Uh, it returned to normal when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled into it. As the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. That through word is going to be important because it's going to come up again in chapter 15. I won't say everything now that I could say about chapter 15, but keep that word in mind. It's not as if the Egyptians just like made a mistake. Uh, the Egyptians were thrown into the sea. God is actively judging them. God is actively drowning them. Uh, again, let's let the Bible tell us what God is like, not our sort of intuition. Verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. This is where, in part, I see it as important that Pharaoh was involved in this. Not one of them remained. It's not as if Pharaoh and his like, you know, little buddies are up on a hill watching all of this take place. No, I think Pharaoh is probably at the head of the army, charging right in, thinking that I am God, I am going to conquer these people, and God, to show Pharaoh and his army that he is not God, uh, obliterates them all, including Pharaoh. Now you think about it, a lot of these Egyptians that were killed were probably not, you know, thoroughgoing, wicked people. They were just, you know, soldiers doing the will of Pharaoh. Uh, you know, I'm in the Navy, in the Navy Reserve, as I think you know, and a lot of the people in the Navy are not necessarily informed as to all of the uh, strategies of our military, and they're not, you know, they're, they're just doing their job. You know, they're there peeling potatoes or, you know, taking out trash. You know, there's, there's a lot of people in the military that just do their job because it's their job, and they're not necessarily fully devoted to the cause or something like that. I'm not, you know, at, at all uh, trying to diminish the honor of the military man and woman. You know, there's a lot of honor there, but, you know, a lot of people just do it because, you know, they got to show up and peel potatoes. So also, a lot of these Egyptians that were killed were not necessarily hardcore, uh, you know, we hate Jehovah, we hate Moses. You know, they were just part of the army, and they were, they were doing their uh, duty that particular day. It does remind us of the way in which the decisions that leaders make, for good or for ill, have massive implications on their people, even if their people aren't even tuned in to what's going on. Uh, you know, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to figure out what I'm talking about there. If you've got a righteous leader that makes righteous decisions, that is a blessing to the entire people, even if the people aren't necessarily righteous. So also, if you've got a wicked, foolish leader who makes wicked, foolish decisions, uh, that's a curse on the entire people, even if the people might, you know, there might, there might even be godly Christians here or there, which is why it's so important to pray for godly, wise, righteous leaders. Um, again, you don't need, to, need a lot of imagination to think about how that applies to us uh, in our particular context today. With elections coming up, you know, I'm not, certainly not going to tell you who to vote for, but pray for God-fearing leaders who make decisions that are consistent with God's unchanging moral law, who are people of integrity uh, and, and hard work and trustworthiness, because our nation will flourish to the degree that we've got such leaders. So let's pray for that.
Uh, anyway, um, not one of them remained, verse 29, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is sort of a summary of what we saw earlier. Uh, dry land, echoing Genesis 1, dry land appeared. Waters like a wall, indicating that this was a bona fide miracle. This was not just some like uh, wind that blew the tide back or some such nonsense that you'll hear sometimes in liberal churches. No, God created two walls. They walked through. Once they were through, God caused the waters to crash down and obliterated the entire Egyptian army. And think about how decimating that would have been to the entire... I mean, Egypt was utterly destroyed after Exodus. Economically, their slaves are all gone. Their livestock's been killed, and, and, and I mean, they're, they're eaten by flies. Uh, now the Pharaoh's dead. Now the army's dead. Uh, obliterated. Uh, I think I mentioned this in these Bible talks, but at my uh, Navy Reserve drill a couple months ago, somebody said they were watching a History Channel documentary, and they said in this History Channel documentary that the strangest thing happens in Egyptian history. Egyptians are flourishing, they're doing great, they're building the pyramids, they're building the, the Sphinx and whatnot, and then all of a sudden, for some, some unexplained reason, everything just collapses and, and, and they, they, they go bottom up. Uh, and this sailor said, you know, we, we don't really know why this happened, and there's nothing to explain why Egyptian, uh, you know, just everything fell apart. Uh, I didn't think about it until afterwards, but it would have been a great time to say, you know, actually there is something that could explain why Egyptian, uh, you know, econo economy and, and warfare and everything just totally bottomed out. Uh, it's something called the Exodus event. I wish I had thought of that at the time. I didn't, but I do think that that does fit well with why Egypt was such a great power. I mean, even from the book of Exodus, you can tell they are the superpower at this particular time. Uh, you know, technologically, they're building the pyramids while the rest of the world is like eating acorns and, you know, eating rats and, you know, living in, living in little huts and stuff like that. So in every respect, they were the superpower and all of a sudden they're, they're just nothing. What happened? Maybe, just maybe it was the Exodus event and that the things that we're talking about here actually happened. But anyway, coming back. Uh, verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw that the Egyptians saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Uh, you'll notice the emphasis there on the Lord being the Savior. Uh, again, you can probably figure out where that's going. This is the storyline of the Bible. We are the saved, God is the Savior. Uh, we are the redeemed, God is the Redeemer. Uh, never read the Bible as if it's about us and about our works. Always read it about God and His works, and we're the beneficiaries of that. That's true from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of the Bible. Um, and clearly, this is most powerfully illustrated in Jesus the Savior, who comes to redeem us from our sins. They saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Uh, that would have been a shocking idea. You know, the, the, the thought is that they drowned, but then their bodies floated to the surface, and some of them sort of drifted into the seashore. Kind of graphic, um, but at, at the same time, I think it's designed to illustrate how decisive, how powerful this victory was. Uh, it's, it's not like uh, it was a partial victory. You know, if you, if you study the history of warfare, there are victories where you're victorious, but enough of the bad guys run away that they can live again to fight another day. Nothing like that takes place here. Egypt, uh, which again, I think at this particular point in history, is representing the seed of the serpent. They're done. They're, 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 they're gone. And that's why you don't really see... I mean, Egypt does come up again later on in Scripture, but it's nothing like now. You know, they're, they're not the player in the world scene as they are at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Uh, and I think that's, again, what's, what's happened. God has so decimated them that they'll, they'll never be the same. Verse 31... Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord 
And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. A couple of quick things before we close up. First, notice the way in which fear of the Lord and faith are not opposites. Sometimes people get this idea that, uh, you know, if I'm afraid of God, I can't trust in him. That's not the case at all. Biblical fear and faith uh, in some ways are almost like synonyms. This is why in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what happens in conversion, first we fear God's judgment, but that fear drives us to trust in the Lord Jesus. I think here of uh, John Newton's great hymn, uh, Amazing Grace. Uh, how does the second verse go? "'Twas grace that taught my heart." Uh, you, you, to us in modern American Christianity, we think that makes no sense at all. You know, isn't God all about you know puppies and, and, and you know sunshine and everything? Actually, no. Part of coming to faith in Jesus is initially fearing, fearing the wrath of God, fearing the judgment that our sins deserve, but that fear in turn drives us to embrace Jesus and realize that's actually a gift, a gift of grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and then grace my fears relieved. So yes, there's fear, but that fear leads me to trust in the Lord Jesus. Uh, an illustration of the, the connection here between faith and fear that uh, I, I encountered recently, I thought that this was pretty good. You know, if you could imagine a, a terrifying special operations warrior, you know, in our military, I mean, a Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, something like that, uh, you know, he is to be feared. But then imagine that same guy coming home and playing with his kids on the floor, loving his wife. Uh, you know, he is a guy to be both feared and loved, and that's how our God is. He is a God to be feared and loved. He is the God who obliterated the Egyptians. He's the God who poured out napalm on Sodom and Gomorrah. He's the God who judged the children of Israel, driving them into Babylon. Uh, so he is to be feared, not a God to be toyed with, and yet in Jesus, he is our gracious, loving Heavenly Father. Uh, he's the God who eats with us and spends time with us and hears our prayers and comforts us. Uh, so those, th these two aspects of God's character, fear and faith, they're not at all opposed. I think they're, they're both vital, and again, they lead us directly to the Lord Jesus. The last thing I'll say this morning. Notice the connection between fearing the Lord, uh, believe, uh, believing in the Lord, and then believing in his servant Moses. There is a connection between believing the Lord and believing those spokesmen that he has sent. Now, now, I don't view myself at all in the same role as Moses. You know, Moses was a very unique man at a very unique time, and God gave him powers that I, you know, I'm never going to turn water into blood or anything like that. I don't have miraculous abilities, and I don't expect that, you know, I can certainly pray for God to do miracles, but I can't, like, touch the waters of the Nile and turn them into blood. And yet, nonetheless, there is this consistent theme throughout Scripture uh, that if you believe in the Lord, you will trust the words of those he has sent. Uh, if you believe the Lord, you'll trust the preachers of the gospel. You'll trust the preachers of the Bible. There's a connection there. Uh, part of the reason I say this is because there is this movement these days uh, that says, you know, the church is so corrupt, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to totally divorce myself from pastors, Bible teachers, and I'm just going to go it alone. Maybe me and my wife, me and my kids, uh, we'll just search the scriptures and just totally ignore uh, all, all Bible teachers, preachers, pastors, that sort of thing. Uh, that, that, let me tell you, is not healthy. Now, are there false teachers and charlatans out there? Of course. Uh, and this is why you need to be discerning. You need to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Be Bereans. But at the end of the day, do realize that God has given to his church pastors, teachers, shepherds designed to shepherd the church. And if you reject that, you're not really at the end of the day rejecting them. You're rejecting God who gave them. Um, you know, I, I need to be careful here because, you know, I, I'm not trying to build up myself and trying to, you know, shame you into following uh, my leadership. By the grace of God, my church has been remarkably loving, uh, consistent, supportive of my leadership. You know, I really feel in some ways like I get to pastor the best church on the planet. 
But again, since these thoughts are floating around there, especially on the internet, you know, I've encountered people on Facebook that have like just uh, given up on church, given up on pastors, since there's so much hypocrisy, so much false teaching, and they're just going to go it alone. Uh, that, that's, that, that's super duper, duper dangerous. Um, and don't be surprised if you get pretty quickly led into serious heresy, if you reject all pastors, all of God's spokesmen. Um, you know, again, be discerning, you know, measure people's teaching. And if you hear them teaching something crazy, you're obviously not bound to uh, believe that. Uh, but do recognize that it is in a way fundamentally rebellious against God to throw off all uh, spokesmen for him because there is a connection there between believing in the Lord and believing in those spokesmen that he has he has sent. Uh, I think you're wise people and you can figure out the implications of what I'm saying. Well how might we pray this passage back to God? Well here are a few quick things come to, come to my mind. First let's pray that God that, that God gives us the grace to let our understanding of the character of God be shaped by scripture and not by our feelings, intuition, American culture. This is one of the great dangers. Um, There's sort of like, you've heard of that uh, video, American Gospel, outstanding series, I'd encourage it to you. Uh, Just like there's an American Gospel that's corrupt, uh, there's an American God that's even more corrupt and more ungodly. Uh, So let's let God in the Bible tell us what he's like, not the God that we sort of imbibe from American culture. Let's glorify God both in his salvation and in his righteous judgments. Uh, God is to be glorified, yes, in the saving of souls, but also in the condemnation of the wicked. That, that's hard for us to get, but at the, at the same time, this is so thoroughly scriptural that you can't get around it. And let's also pray for both discernment, but also, what's the word, uh, grace to submit to good Bible teachers, preachers, um, you know, to, to respect their teaching, to follow their teaching insofar as it's scriptural, but at the same time not to be led astray by false teachers, because not everybody who claims to speak for God does speak for God. Let me pray along these lines, and we'll, then we'll be done. Oh God, it's been a joy to study your word this morning. We do thank you for the way that your word does teach us about ourselves, teach us, teaches us about you, teaches us about your plan of redemption and the way in which that culminates in Jesus. Uh, we do praise you for the way that you are a God of righteous judgment. Uh, Lord, you have the freedom to save and to judge. And clearly we see that in this particular passage, that you had mercy on the Israelites, and yet you condemned the Egyptians. And we do pray that you would allow your word, help us to let your word shape our character of God, and not our intuition, not American culture, not uh, how we want God to be. Um, But let's let scripture tell us uh, what you're like. Help us to do that. Lord, also as we talk about listening to pastors, listening to preachers. Uh, give us, Lord, both discernment and submissive hearts, both um, the ability to evaluate their teaching, to search the scriptures to see if these things are so, but at the same time to follow them insofar as they follow Christ. And we do thank you, Lord, for faithful pastors, preachers, missionaries, evangelists uh, who do proclaim the whole counsel of God. And we pray that you would call out even more into your church. Lord, bless another man of our day. Give us opportunities to love one another, to commend Jesus to others, and gather us again next week to study your word together. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day.